Queer Business Success, the podcast for LGBTQIA business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs, coaches, caregivers, and the allies who love our community. We tell the stories of why our businesses were formed, who we serve, our challenges and successes, and we offer sound advice to our fellow queer entrepreneurs. Our hope is to inspire, enlighten, and highlight the services that our LGBTQIA businesses and allies offer. If we can do this, so can you. We believe that we need more LGBTQIA business owners, not only for our community, but for a better world. Here's our host, Anne-Marie Zanza. So Leela, tell me why you went to Divinity School in Chicago. <laughs> I'm going I'm to assume it's McCormick, right? Or was no, it- no, it was Meadville Lombard. Oh, me, Varla. Okay. Okay. At the time we were right around the corner from McCormick, although the campus has since moved. Okay. So is that a Unitarian church, a Unitarian seminary? Yes. It's a UU seminary. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had sworn when I was dating the person that was in seminary that I was never going to seminary and I was never going to be a minister, and I was never going to live in Chicago, although I didn't swear that at the same time. That was separate. I just didn't like Chicago. (laughs) So, of course, the universe has all kinds of cute ideas about that. (laughs) Just call you uh, uh, Jonah, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That's my name, Jonah. (laughs) So, um, So, yeah, I did not think I had a call. Mm-hmm. I had been deeply involved in lay leadership, but I didn't think I had a call. Mm-hmm. And then I went to, we have a, a thing in Unitarian Universalism called fellowshipping, which is like the denominational approval to go forward in the ministerial process and become a mm-hmm. minister. And you traditionally you're granted fellowship after going before a committee and doing an interview, which you usually do in your third or fourth year of seminary. And someone that I had, well, the person I had been dating was finally getting fellowship. It had been kind of a process. And so I need, I needed closure, even though we weren't dating anymore, I needed closure on his process because I had been there for so much of it. And so I did this wild thing that you can do in your twenties. I was living in Minneapolis at the time. I had a pretty well settled life. I was working in IT. I was Um, in a writing group. I had a great group of friends. My social calendar was full and happy. I really liked living in Minneapolis for a lot of reasons. And General Assembly was in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. I drove from Minneapolis to Cleveland to see this one ceremony and then drove back in the same day. Oh my goodness. because I was in my twenties and that was still something I could do at that time, but also because, and I, because I didn't have slash want to spend the resources on being at our annual conference for the whole, because it's expensive to go. That's a whole mm-hmm. other conversation we're having in our nomination about how to make it more accessible, but it is not accessible. So, and I wasn't working in church things at the time. I was a little relieved not to have any obligations I kept trying to not go to church on Sundays, even though I kept going to church on Sundays anyway. I'd be but like, this why? Sunday would not go. Well, because because I didn't have to, right? When when I was dating a seminarian, dating someone who was coming up in church leadership, 
I kind of had to go to church with him, at least some of the time. I and I had gone to church religiously, literally, <laughs> for most of my life. And some part of me really wanted a break, but wanted to have my weekends, my Sundays specifically. I, when I fantasize about planting a church now, I fantasize about planting a church that meets on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> Not because I'm a morning person, but, yeah, yeah. but because it interrupts the middle of the weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I kept trying not to go to church and I kept going to church anyway. I would just, I would, I'm in a morning person. I would wake up. I would be like, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Church is at 1030. You can go to church. <laughs> and then I'd be like, well, maybe I don't want to go to church. And then I was like, no, I actually do want to go to church. So that was like every Sunday at that time in my life. And, and Unitarian Universalism had been such a big part of my life for so long. So anyway, I drove down to Cleveland and I went to this, it's a a worship service. Mm -hmm. And sitting there listening to the sermon in the worship service that was specifically about honoring people who are making transitions in their ministerial lives, either into or out of it. I thought, uh, oh, oh. (laughs) And I had that call moment and The most surprising thing about it was that at the time I was deeply agnostic. I did not think God was knowable. Mm -hmm. And that's fine in our denomination. That's not a a conflict or a problem. But but I didn't think God was knowable. And so to have this experience of like a voice in my head saying, you're supposed to be a minister. And it wasn't me thinking I'm supposed to be a minister. It was this externalized kind of experience that I think, very few people who haven't had a call experience of some kind can understand. Like if it hasn't happened to you, I don't know how to explain it. It happened. I, I understand. It happened to me. Um, it, we don't need to go into it. It's a long story, but um, it was an audible exterior call. Mm-hmm. And I remember because now this was after, um, but I remember like in my first unit of CPE, the person that I was, like she was so anxious that she didn't have a call and she didn't know. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I didn't realize what I experienced was a call at that point. You know what I'm saying? And then it was mm-hmm. almost later in reflection and also probably hearing that person talk about how they were so anxious about not having a call um, or not sure if they had one that I was like, oh, that's what I just didn't have a name for it. You know, I knew oh, that. that old thing. I just picked it up in the backyard one day. <laughs> No, it was just like, it was the, it was, it was the moment that started me on the path. Yeah, That's that moment. Yeah. I mean, it took years, but it was that moment. So it's, but also too, like, I'm just going to say this, Leela, who drives all the way from Minneapolis to to Cincinnati or Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland and, and to go to a service for a couple of hours. Like it seemed terrible at the time. Yes. <laughs> so you get this call and you have all of a sudden you're like, what, you know, which right. are. And so my original plan was to get back in the car immediately at the close of the service, because I will mm-hmm. have gotten my closure. That's what I came for and to drive back. And instead, I go to the exhibit hall and I wander around and I talk to the reps from Star King, which is one of the UU seminaries, and Meadville, which is the other one, and even to Harvard Divinity School, which is where my ex went. And I didn't really want to go there, but 
I, those were the three big schools at the time. Andover Newton was also a, a major player, but I didn't really feel any interest in going to Andover Newton. So, so I spent several hours wandering around the exhibit hall. I talked to the person who mentored me in high school, who was a high-ranking person in the denomination at the time. Um, may her memory be a blessing. And I stood at the Meadville table talking and talking and talking. And they had that year, they were giving out these little triangle shaped highlighters, mm -hmm. the three colors of, and, and their logo. And I picked one up and put them in my pocket, didn't really think about anything, think anything of it. And then I got back to work and I put it on my desk and it stared at me mm -hmm. while I answered tech support calls. Mm-hmm. 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 And eventually I was like, you said you weren't going to do this, especially not in Chicago. But here we are. So I decided to take a baby step in mm -hmm. and I signed up for one history class. They, they were offering their very first remote class ever. And you signed up for it. And I signed up for it. And it was a UU history class. And it was, you know, janky as I'll get out because it was 2002. And um, I understand. I took the first online class Hartford Seminary ever. <laughs> it was yeah, really right? Like it was a very different experience. <laughs> it was horrible, actually. <laughs> so you take this class and all of a sudden, now was it UU history or American religious history? No, it was UU history. Okay. You know, Leela, very quickly, if someone, like, I know what a UU person is and stuff like that, but <laughs> you and I are talking with this assumption that everybody knows. Can you talk, just like, give like, if you met me in an elevator and we had 10 floors to go, what would you say when you said, hey, I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister? And I go, what's that? Go. So, uh, let me start <laughs> with, if people really want an answer to that, like a written answer, they should go to UUA.org. Okay. And that will, okay. like that, yeah. there's lots of information there, but um, the 10 second answer is we're non-denominational, non-creedal religion that believes that we need to live in deep consonance with our, with our beliefs. And so we gather in community to examine those beliefs and then to live them out in society and in our individual lives. We do have right now, we're, it's, we're in the middle of revising them. So this may change, but right now we do have... Um, eight principles, we have seven principles, the eighth one is in the process of being adopted, um, that tell us kind of what our general focus is. We talk about inherent worth and dignity of every person and use of the democratic process and the interdependent web of all existence. And we, we, we engage in a sense of common care mm -hmm. and shared responsibility, not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of everybody who's in community with us. And as our understanding as a denomination has grown, we've gone from being fairly uh, colonialist white to to really understanding that our our that common responsibility includes the world, includes everything in the world. So I heard you say non-denominational, and then you just said denominational. Mm -mm. Okay, non-creedal. Oh, I know you said non-credal, but I thought yeah, I said said... non-denominational. I didn't mean to. Okay. Um, okay. Because I was like, I think you guys are a denomination. No, we are a denomination. We are, we are, maybe what I said was denominational. What I meant was non-dogmatic. We don't have yeah. a dogma and we don't have a creed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what that means in practice is that we all have to do the deep work of figuring out what we believe. 
And lots and lots of people say, oh, Unitarian Universalists can believe whatever they want. And that is not true. If you have ever tried to believe something that you don't believe, because it would be convenient. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, I was atheist and agnostic. And I can tell you that there were lots of times when I wish I could believe in God because it would be easier. And I didn't. Mm -hmm. And when I did start to believe in gods, it came to me as direct experiences of the divine that I couldn't deny. And that was inconvenient because my entire identity was wrapped, theological identity was wrapped around agnosticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it means encountering what you actually believe and working with it and engaging with it and digging into it and examining it. And in that regard, we, I say we're more like Judaism than we are like Christianity, although we are descended from Christianity mm -hmm. because we are a deeply dialogical religion. We ask mm -hmm. questions. We, you know, argue with the various higher powers that many of us have. Mm -hmm. um, we mm -hmm. argue with each other, but all in the name of coming to a deeper understanding. A deeper understanding of the human experience. A deeper understanding of the human experience, of the nature of the sacred in the world, Mm -hmm. of the the call or the role of every human being and every living being and every everything in the world. Um, really, for me, and this is where I can't talk about everybody because our theologies, we don't actually yeah. tell you what to believe about God. Yeah. We're um, much more interested in how you live it out. <laughs> yeah. UCC is non-credal as well. So I, I completely understand that. You know, it's, it's, we don't, we're made it, it, the the supposition is we're we're supposed to think about what yes. we believe, you know. And so, if you go to a, a UCC church, you know, there's there's a spectrum of UCCs. So just because you're going to UCC church doesn't mean you're going to be walking into a. Even though the like that's why we have the uh, open uh, opening affirming O and A open and affirming um, designation because. And you have to apply for it because it's just not assumed that every church in the UCC will be ONA, which is open and affirming to the queer community. So um, it's it's really actually really beautiful in a lot of ways because we don't tell like we don't tell people what to believe. They have to sort of figure it. And a lot of people want to be told what to believe. Mm -hmm. So that, that ambiguity, that, that, that in between is very uncomfortable for some people. Yeah. If much somebody rather wants, say, do this, 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 you'll go to heaven. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If somebody wants like a formula for going to heaven, we're first going to have to have a conversation about heaven. Heaven does it What exist? does that mean to you? Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean? Does it exist? Do people go there or is it just that as, you know, um, Rita Nash Nakashima Brock and, uh, Oh, shoot. Who is her co-author on that book? Uh, Rebecca Parker said in, in Saving Paradise that the earliest churches believed that we were supposed to create heaven here. Here on earth. Yeah. God's kingdom on earth. Yeah. So, you know, uh, let's talk about your ideas. Let's talk about your, where did you get your ideas? Are we sure that those are the right ideas? <laughs> so, Sometime you know, next week, we might come to the end of that conversation. Maybe. So may I ask you some UU questions and sort of take a little bit of a yeah. pivot here? Yeah. So for, especially for people who may be looking, who may have been rejected by their church or denomination and are looking for, because a lot of, a lot of people who have been often look for places where they can feel a part of. Mm -hmm. 
So first of all, I can, is it hard to get things done? <laughs> Church, I'm not just going. <laughs> um, it, it really depends. If mm-hmm. everybody, sometimes everybody's in agreement because it's so obvious to us that something should happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes right now we're having some, some challenges because we're really trying to shake off a lot of the historic racism and ties to eugenics and some of the more challenging parts of our history. And there are people who feel really threatened by that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as you go through, as with any system, you know, we're going through some deep changes and sometimes it's hard to get things done when we're going through those deep changes. And sometimes it's remarkably easy. Mm-hmm. My preaching professor, now this is, this is from a generation past, but my preaching professor um, David Bumba used to tell a story about how he had been called to his church, like in 1968, mm-hmm. in the middle of all of that. Yeah, all the maybe time. it was a little bit earlier, but it was in the 60s, in the middle of all the things that were happening in the 60s. And he was in, I think, New Jersey, New England, something like that. And one day, he basically got to church, and his board or his leadership handed him a bus ticket and said you're going, you're going to the next protest. You're going like, here's the ticket, get out of here. <laughs> and that's, that, that's remarkable, right? That wasn't hard to get done. That was right. a bunch of right. readers right. being right. like, this is clearly the right thing to do. We want to be there on the ground. A bunch of other UUs are going, here's your ticket, go, get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes when it's clear that we're all in alignment, when our principles are being enacted in a way that's crystalline like that. And one of the times was the um, Oberfell decision. Decision. Mm-hmm. The couple in that decision was a Unitarian Universalist couple. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, it, well, and the Unitarian Universalists were the first to marry gay people too, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our yeah. first ceremony of union on record happened in 1958. In whereabouts? I don't know where. It was a private ceremony in the minister's office. Wow. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It is. It gives, like, I'm getting goosebumps right now (laughs) because, because to be queer, to grow up queer and to be immersed in an environment that is so unquestioningly gay positive in the eighties, in the nineties, like I never, ever worried about coming out ever. Not one drop of concern that my church community was going to reject me for coming out ever. Do you know how foreign that is for so many people in the queer community? They just like, they can't even wrap their, like, I am going to say that as somebody who came out later in life, the most accepting people out of all of it was the people from church, my church. I mean, I was also had been the associate pastor there for a while, but they were so loving and so accepting. And I I had the opposite experience of most queer people when they come out. So I, I also had a very positive church experience coming out as well. So when you Unitarians get into a good discussion about theology. (laughs) At coffee Um, hour, on the sidewalk, at the rummage sale. Yeah. Um, So Unitarian, just give a beef what, you know, that means you believe in one God, correct? Is that how you define? I may have it defined wrong. So the so the caveat I have to give with this is that this is our theological root, but it's not actually where we are actively as a faith tradition now. So our root is that we were we are the merger, 1961 merger of the Unitarians and the Universalists. Universalists, yeah. The Unitarians were a splinter group from the Congregationalists. Mm-hmm. 
in the 1800s, William Ellery Channing gave a speech at a an, at an ordination, poor kid, at somebody else's ordination, he gave the, the sermon and the sermon was called Unitarian Christianity. And he laid out this idea that we believe in the unity, not the Trinity of God. It doesn't make any sense that three parts of the same entity can like sit around and talk and enjoy each other's company and then all be one thing like that's illogical. This was the age of logic. And, and he deeply offended a bunch of people and it created this schism where the Congregationalists set themselves up like in Castine, Maine, there is the Trinitarian Congregationalist Church and then there's the Unitarian Church. Wow. Um, and the Unitarians got the building in that case. There were these splits happened all over the place. And um, and the Unitarians in some cases got the building, and in some cases the, the Trinitarians got the building. Whoever got the building usually had that like classic New England church that was on the town green. And then the other group often built an identical church a block away, one street over, nearby. In Bangor, Maine, the two churches that did this are like one is on one hill and one is on the other hill, and downtown's in the middle. Like, <laughs> so um, if you go to a, go to a, sit, a town and you see two identical-looking churches, and one of them is Unitarian and one of them is Congregationalist, that's the story. Well, it's so funny because you know the old joke: what UCC stands for, right? Unitarian considering Christ. <laughs> and now I never knew this. I always just thought it was a joke. Now I understand there's a historical <laughs> reason why there's that joke, you know? Yeah, we're the most recent fork. Yeah. Like there are all these schisms in the history of Christianity, but we are the most recent fork. And then we turned out to be too inclusive theologically and we got kicked out of Christianity, basically. Mm -hmm. So now we have some members who are Christian because we don't tell people what to believe about God, but but as a denomination, we're not Christian. I have read somewhere that sometimes more you 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 churches lean more Christian, while others lean more Jewish, um, and some others lean just basically you you. So, do do you find is that true? Very few of us lean what I would call Jewish. Okay. Um, we, some of us, especially in like the New York suburbs where I grew up, have a lot of folks who came from Judaism or who still claim Judaism as part of their identity. We have a lot of what we call hyphenated UUs who are Unitarian Universalists, but they're UU Jewish or UU Hindu or UU Buddhist. Um, and, you know, people mix and blend the faith traditions that have been meaningful to them or that they've been part of before with their Unitarian Universalism. And some of a lot of Unitarian Universalist churches really had a big burst in membership um, during the the Red Scare mm -hmm. in American history, because everybody who wasn't going to church was tagged as communist. Ah. And so the the humanists and the atheists had to find a church. So they would be safe. So they would be safe. And so our congregations became were, that sanctuary. You were sanctuary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a question for you and it, it just left my mind. I find this really, really fascinating. Um, Let me just circle back and finish what universalism is before we okay. leave that loop open. Mm -hmm. So universalism is the idea that a loving God would not send his children to hell. Well, I don't believe that anyway, so I must be. <laughs> so you are, so you're probably a universalist Christian. You, yeah. Like theologically, universalism simply means that we don't believe in hell. I don't believe and in so heaven. everybody goes to heaven if you believe in heaven, which is oh my gosh, Leela, what are you doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> because I I've literally told people that for years. I don't believe in hell. I mean, you can't you can't 
for me, you cannot, how can I rectify a loving God with a place of torture? That is absolutely the argument that universalists (laughs) have been making for literal centuries. The first person who got like yelled at for being universalist was um, Origen. Mm-hmm. Right oh, around the, the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's like, wait a minute, you can't make. Yeah, it was really interesting. I went to uh, a prote- protest the other day, and it was somebody who was protesting. I was the opposite, of course. Um, a gay prom they were having mm-hmm. here in Nashville, and she had a big sign that had a that said, you know, homosexuality is abomination and all that stuff like that, and. Like, so I went over and started talking to her and I was like, why are you doing this? Like, you know, and I'm trying to do the Jesus route, you know, like Jesus Mm -hmm. calls us to take care of the poor and like, what? And like, she goes, but this is love. And I'm like, I just, I'm not even going to try to do it. It's just, this is is not love. When people say that, but my, my gut response is like, honey, are you okay? Yeah. Do we need to go private somewhere? somewhat yeah. private and talk because it sounds like something else is wrong. If you think this is what love looks like, oh, which was really interesting because my wife and I were talking about it afterwards and she goes, she's a very ill person because she just was who stands outside with a huge sign for 12 hours before our prom starts, you know, who does that? I mean, that's, that's, I mean, very- I, you know, I, I used to buy into that and I don't, I don't let people off like the, off the hook like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that people who are committing hate crimes are mostly mentally ill. Mm-hmm. I think they're mostly making deliberate choices, probably from a series of really bad experiences and or bad training, but, um, but they're responsible for well, their I, actions and their choices. Well, I actually didn't leave her off the hook there. I left her off the hook when she told me I couldn't be a minister because I wasn't a man. And I was like, okay, I'm done here. <laughs> Just, I just, I did just I didn't have the energy. Time, did I tell you last time that exact thing happened to me in CPE? Oh, really? Somebody yeah. said that to you? Do That's your that. listeners know what CPE is? Because we keep mentioning it. It's clinical pastoral education. It's what you do to the most major denominations require CPE. I was with three UUs when I was at, when I did my first unit. So um, it's required by your denomination, I think still. Yes. It's required okay. by most mainline, mainline Christian or UUs. Um, and some, there's some, some, you know, some Judaism that requires it now. Um, but it's a way to sort of train ministers like through an action reflection model. Yeah. So and it's happening. usually, a cha- it's a chaplaincy internship generally either in, in a, a prison or in a hospital. Yeah. Healthcare setting, um, or, or somewhere else, like you said, like, so what happened to you? So I'm. I'm on duty. I have my name badge. It says chaplain. You know, I'm on my way into a room. I knock on the door and I open the door and the person that I meet, I I say, hi, I'm the chaplain. I'm here to check in and see how things are going. And the, I don't know whether he was the father or the husband, like some male authority figure of the family looked at me, took what did one of these like once over up and downs and said, you can't be the, the chaplain. And, and I said, excuse me, <laughs> standing there with my hospital official name badge, this chaplain, he said, no, no, you can't be the chaplain. I said, I said, why, why not? He said, why did you cut your hair? Because I had shorter hair than I have yeah. now. And he said, and I said, be- because I wanted to, I had <laughs> long hair for a long time and I decided I wanted it short. And he said, but long hair is to the glory of God. Uh, and so I what said, did you say? I, I said, I don't believe in that God. Mm, good for you. 
which I've been saying in one way or another since I was five years old. So, yeah. Um, and, and he said, well, there's no way you could be the chaplain anyway. And, and, and I said, why? And he said, cause you're a woman and, and women can't be ministers. Only men can be ministers. And because it was CPE and because this is chaplaincy, I did not argue with him. I said, excuse me a minute. I stepped out of the room and I called my tall black Baptist colleague and said, Hey, do you want to come down here? Room 725. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And that's also too, like, sometimes people don't want to be, sometimes we can't minister to people that Mm -hmm. don't want us there because of our gender or our, unfortunately our color um, it was, I, you know how many times I've been re- like, because I'm a girl, like I, like I'm, I was very used to that. I've even been told like, I've had, have had, I have blonde hair. And so I've had dumb blonde jokes told, told to me, they would never do that to a male minister ever. And I wouldn't expect so now. Now. <laughs> so you go, so you said that one of the things I found really interesting, Lila, is that you said that you were an atheist agnostic as a child. And then, so do you, do you believe in a higher power God now, or do you still consider yourself an agnostic? No, my theological journey is, is the more, I think it's the more complicated one. A lot of people start out theist and they end up atheist. Mm -hmm. And my parents are both atheists. And so I grew up atheist. And then as I came. In the UU. So you're allowed to be an atheist in the UU. Oh, Absolutely. Okay. You can be an atheist, you can be a polytheist, you can be a pantheist, you can be a panentheist. Like if there's a Yeah, this is the question I was gonna ask you. Do why do people go? Is it because of the community? Like, you know, why is what is the is it because of the community and the shared values that people go to UU churches? It because there's such a wide range. I I sounds like there's a lot of respect for everybody's belief. But like, what's the draw? I mean, so what's the draw to church for your people? When people go to a UCC church, why do they go to church? The most current one that I church I served, it really was, it was more about community and good works and social justice. And God sort of came in third or fourth. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't. But many of them grew up in very conservative Southern So one time we did this thing in which they basically were like, they believe that God controlled everything, every Mm -hmm. act, like, and I I don't believe that. And so it was just like, I I realized like how ingrained, even though they had left their, their uh, conservative theological denominations years ago, a lot of the same thoughts about God were still the ones that they were taught as children, even though they are much more progressive now. They're, they're all really highly educated. It grew out of Vanderbilt. So the people that go there tend to be pretty highly mm-hmm. educated. Yeah. So it was- sort Yeah. Of, yeah. In, the, in the trans-masculine discord that I co-moderate, which is enormous, I don't remember if I mentioned it last time we talked, we have mm-hmm. 1,500, no, it's 1,800 now, 1,800 members around the world mm-hmm. and a team of like 12 moderators. And we see that a lot of people who- ostensibly left their old denomination a long time ago. Either they came out as queer and they left their old denomination or they just kind of, it didn't feel right. So they left it, they were too liberal. So they left it, whatever it was. And so there's been this this practice gap 
And then they come out, um, our, our server is specifically for people over the age of 26. Mm-hmm. And so they come out often later in life. And, you know, I know you know that story, <laughs> either as queer or as trans or both. And one of the things that, that they're often wrestling with, with when they come out is, but I still kind of noticed, like, I didn't think, I thought it was over it. And now I notice that I still believe that God is going to judge me for being trans, that God is going to judge me for being queer, that this is wrong, that this is evil, that this is. And and I have to give props because the members of the server are in all different places around this from, you know, religious to not religious and from um, theist to atheist and from having worked through this and being accepting and having come to an accepting spiritual or theological understanding and not and like just arriving and going, oh, no oh no, I can't be trans because if I'm trans, then I'm evil. Like people literally start there. And and the process of figuring that out is really the process of being held in community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Often over months, sometimes over years, just Mm -hmm. keep showing up and everybody and saying, you know, I'm having these, you know, hateful thoughts about myself and everybody being like, we all know, like you told us where those hateful thoughts came from. We are just here to remind you and hold the container and remind you and hold the container and remind you that you have realized and all of us have realized that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That God, if if you believe in God still, that God loves you, that you mm-hmm. are holy in the eyes of God, that you were made perfect the first time. Mm-hmm. I, I know that like, I'll never forget when I slept with my wife for the first time. And, you know, I was like the best ally of all times and had, like, like, didn't, like, didn't think anything was sinful or anything like that. And I remember like being stunned, being like, in the beginning, being very, like, all of a sudden this, right, it went through my mind, like, oh my God, is this, it went through my mind, is this sinful? Mm-hmm. And I quickly dismissed it. Um, but I was stunned, like, because of my theology, because what I believe mm-hmm. as a human being that I actually, and what I always tell people is religious roots run really, really deep. They you do. Know? They start early. They repeat it often. We see them echoed in our culture. And it really, like, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have grown up without any of that. Like, I knew it was out there somewhere, but when you start out a five-year-old atheist and you're arguing with the Catholic kid in the drinking fountain line, and he says, you're going to hell. And you say, I can't go to hell because I don't believe in hell. Like you're used to not agreeing with anybody about what they believe by the time you come to adolescence. You were a super old soul, Leila. I mean, I mean, some of old says that. <laughs> some of it is old soul. And some of it is literally the same kind of training that other minority groups give their kids about other situations that, you know, my parents had to give me something to say. Mm-hmm. I didn't say under God and the pledge of allegiance. I would just drop out mm-hmm. when we said mm-hmm. that and then come back in, in the next phrase. And, you know, my parents had to give me something to explain that to the teachers or to my other students. My parents had to give me something to say to people who were trying to impose their Christianity or some other religion, but usually it was Christians on me. Mm-hmm. And so I had, like, I literally went to school with a small stack of stock phrases that a five-year-old could say, but also an understanding of what those phrases meant and the capacity to have that theological conversation in the in the drinking fountain line. And I very rapidly realized that 
most of the people I was talking to did not have the capacity to have the theological conversation. Yeah, I find that um, I'll never forget in seminary, like talking about like how our earliest images of God are often formed by our earliest caregivers, you know, and um, and, and like how, how much that made sense to me. Because often, you know, I've also seen so many little kids be like, you know, see a picture of a, you know, a white guy somewhere and be like, oh, is that God? <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's little white children generally, mm-hmm. <laughs> little white kids. Um, but it, it was really eye opening to me to realize that because what I found is that a lot of people stay with that image. Mm-hmm. of the God that of their childhood mm-hmm. um, and don't move on. Don't like explore it beyond that. And because that's a lot what like gender. True. Absolutely true. That makes a lot of sense. You know, we're going down the UU and we're talking a lot about this, but you just brought up genders. <laughs> <laughs> So I would love to get the information from you about how people can find the transmasculine discord. Do they need to reach out to you if you, um, you know, if they want to join the group, do they, you know, need approval? I mean, you know. So the way the transmasculine discord works, um, it's, it's It's on discord, uh, right? I'm assuming it's on discord. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's, we have a a kind of a gate check system Mm -hmm. so that we don't end up with trolls because being a transmasculine discord, we could end up with a real mess if we didn't. So, um, so the way it works is you have to be over 26 years old Mm -hmm. um, because we're specifically a community. There are a lot of younger transmasculine folks and we're all really excited that that's happening and the conversations you have to have, especially if you're coming out later, but even if you're just moving into older age are different, Mm -hmm. just like they would be in any other community. So you have to be over 26 years old and you have to be willing and able to use Discord and willing and able to abide by the rules of the Discord. Um, I don't imagine there's going to be a giant run on it from this podcast. No. So, so yeah, people should contact me directly and tell me that this is where you heard about it. Yes. Okay. And then I can give you the sign up link rather than putting the sign up link in the show notes. So gender. Yes. How you de- do you define you define as transmasculine now? Correct. I'm, I identify as transmasculine and genderqueer. Okay. What does that mean for the uninitiated? So transmasculine simply means that my gender that I was assigned at birth, I was assigned female at birth, that my gender that I was assigned at birth doesn't match with my internal sense of my gender. Okay. And, um, and that specifically, when I say transmasculine, specifically what I mean is that I lean toward what this culture generally calls, calls masculinity. That if mm-hmm. you were going to try and sort me into a bin that was either feminine or masculine, the bin you would probably put me in is masculine. That said, I have a very complex understanding of gender, similar to my understanding of God. And it might take us you know, a couple of hours of good conversation to really dig into what gender is because the longer I identify as trans, the longer I realize, the more I realize that, that gender is entirely constructed. Mm -hmm. It is entirely constructed. It's not real. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it impacts us in real ways, but it's Mm -hmm. also like, if I say what's feminine or what's masculine and you start listing characteristics, I can guaranteed name somebody who 
who fits into a different gender profile than you think that one belongs in, mm-hmm. who has those characteristics. I can name gods, I can name public figures, I can name you know ordinary people that I know. And so then when we start to say, well, what, what is feminine? When you say you're femme, what does that mean? When you say you're masculine, what now femme specifically as a queer identifier mm-hmm. is its own kind of category. Absolutely. But I'm noticing straight people and, and people who don't know that kind of picking it up and using it as a shorthand for feminine. Mm-hmm. Eh, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also language evolves in ways that we can't control. I'm aware of that. Mm-hmm. So I identify, and gender queer to me means this, it means something. So when I say I'm queer, I mean that I'm, that I am, um, that I'm, that I push back at the idea of, of boxes and categories for sexuality. And when I say that I'm, and, and there's a kind of a political, slightly activisty flavor to queerness, that -hmm. queerness is always challenging the idea that we can be narrowly defined mm-hmm. and gender queer to me picks up that same idea and applies it to gender so it it moves for me it moves me off the the linear sorry it moves me off the linear spectrum of masculine and feminine and there's a line and there's a middle and if you're non-binary then you're in the middle between these two goalposts or pillars or whatever and says more gender is a field of stars Mm-hmm. And so I could that, be anywhere in any of the dimensions of that. Okay. So, because I just had somebody come out as non-binary, I mean, the other day, and, and, and I am not fluid or fluent in gender, really. I really am not. And um, I mean, I'm okay. Like I know the basics, but like not in a way, even though I've had several people come out late in life and transition to men in my groups over the time, over time. Sure. Um, and so what I'm hearing you say is that when somebody comes out as non-binary, it is more that they exist between the binary of male and female. While if somebody identifies as gender queer, there really isn't a binary. And am I, I don't think that it's right? That, I don't think it's that simple. So, okay. so non-binary is often understood by people who aren't as embedded in gender identity and politics and stuff as being that midpoint on the single axis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but non-binary is really the biggest umbrella term. Okay. Got so it. if you're not, we talk about people who binary transition and people who, who transition and who are non-binary. So if you aren't going to like, if you're not transitioning to, um, to align your body and your presentation with a gender that is man or woman, like some people, deliberately put themselves into those buckets in their transition. Right. And most of the people who don't, most of the people who are like, I'm kind of femboy, my my one of my partners says that their gender is um, and this is riffing on an internet meme, um, non-gender left boy. Like <laughs> there's an internet meme about pizza and toppings and <laughs> and and it's that kind of like it's complicated. There's a, there used to be a Twitter account. I don't know if they're still active that would say like gender of the day. And it was the gender of the day is like salmon swimming through a sparkling sea. The gender of the day is trees growing. And, and so some people who say they're non-binary are in the middle of that spectrum. And some people who say they're non-binary are almost at the end of one of those, at, at what, 
at one of the ends of the spectrum. And some people who say they're non-binary are more like gender queer, gender fluid, or gender flux, um, or agender. So agender means they don't have a gender. Um, gender flux and gender fluid are both ways of expressing uh, a gender that's mutable, that some days they're, they do identify as a woman and other days they don't identify as a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sort of understand that because I like gender to me is not as important as it is to my wife. My wife very firmly identifies as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, like, I don't know, like I have this innate knowing when somebody says to me that they're non-binary, I sort of understand what that means. But now talking to you, I'm like, eh, maybe I'm not. <laughs> maybe I'm, <laughs> you know, because like, like gender doesn't really matter to me, although I present very feminine. But I, once you get outside the binary, outside male and female, I mean, I've been called, like men call me like, I like you, you're like a dude. And that's something that a lot of people in our server here that my partner has heard over the years that, and and it's because we have these personality characteristics or behavioral characteristics that they mm-hmm. identify as male. As male. And, you, and you have a choice. You can be like, yes, my identity is woman and these things fit into that box. And I'm sorry, your box is too small. Or That's you can be like, way. or you can be like, you know what? That box is too small and I don't fit in that box anymore. Ah. Or I never did. So what I find is really interesting is that a lot of times people do start with sexual orientation because that's really the, like, I think it's the language most people are familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. we, you know, and the, the gender stuff, although it's existed forever is relatively new in the language now. Mm-hmm. I, I Would you agree with me or am I totally wrong? <laughs> I mean, I think both have sprung up in different ways. If you look mm-hmm. back in queer history and kind of comb through queer history, there are many, many instances of queer subcultures creating language to identify people who were pushing right up against the edge of gender. And, and the ways that the queer cultural groups ask those people to behave in order to kind of fit the box change over time. Ah, I see what you're saying. So for example, in the 1950s, you weren't allowed to be androgynous. You weren't allowed to be Mm -hmm. non-binary. That wasn't a thing. You could be butch or you could be femme and that was it. And butches only dated femmes and femmes only dated butches. Heaven forbid you were butch who was into butches. Or femme into femmes, right? Femmes into femmes had a less hard time, just like women into women have a less hard time. Right. Like it was, it reflected the culture and all of the kind of strictures and challenges of that. Um, You know, butches into butches really had to hide their identities, had to hide their faces, had to, had to pretend they weren't often with their entire lives, hiding relationships from their own queer communities because because they would have been ostracized. We're so tough on each other, aren't we? (laughs) We are, we are, and it's so bad. And then like you see, in the, you know, butch is a category, but then it's got subcategories, stone mm-hmm. butches, mm-hmm. for example, right? Mm-hmm. A stone butch is a very specific kind, specific of, kind of butch. Right, yeah. And, and it was one of the kinds of butch that frequently approached what we would now consider or invite someone to consider as a, a trans identity. And, yeah. Of course, we would never tell someone who they were, what they were, right? That's not how you get to self-identify and history is complicated. Talking about history is complicated. Who do we claim and how do we claim them? But when, and so we look for people when we're looking to to 
when we're looking to see, find, you know, sieve out our, our trans masculine histories, often we're looking for people who actually passed as men, because it's really clear if you tried to pass as a man for most of your life, got mm-hmm. married, got away with it, like you were probably a guy. Whereas if you were just like quietly wearing the least femme clothes you could get away with living on your farm with your femme partner, that's like, I don't know if you were a lesbian or if you were transmasculine yeah. or if you yeah. were both, because now our definitions are all smushy mushy. What yeah, is a lesbian at this point? I have a question for you. So, um, and I think we're going to have to wrap up with this question because I really find this whole topic fascinating. Um, all right. You've come out as gay or queer or lesbian or whatever. And then all of a sudden it starts coming up for you. Oh, <laughs> because that's often what happens. You know, and people get really frightened by that. I think it frightens people more than it frightens them about their sexuality sometimes. Because we have, I think, I think we've had more examples of lesbians and gay guys and bisexuals. We have have more examples of sexual orientation than we've had of gender stuff in the greater culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's and younger. I don't want to call it gender stuff. That sounds so bad. Um how should I say it? I mean, I think transgressing gender, gender, gender transition, like okay. all of these everything, every phrase we have right now is fraught in some way. Yeah. And gender and, stuff that sounds dismissive, and I don't want to say it like that. I mean, it I in some ways I think it's accurate. It's it's because because it's all different kinds of gender stuff, right? It's mm-hmm. deconstructing toxic masculinity. You want to see a gorgeous conversation about deconstructing tos- toxic masculinity? I, we are a closed server, but if we were an open server, I would want to show you the conversations that we have in there as people deliberately elect into something that includes masculinity and do not wish to be toxic about it. Ah. Uh. And know often from personal experience what the consequences of that are, right? So there's all, and but then we have those conversations and then we bring them out, right? Then I have this conversation with you in public. Then we have conversations with our friends and our family members and our spouses and our partners. And so the the conversation expands in the same way that, that when queerness was coming into better acceptance after, you know, the peak of the AIDS crisis in the 90s, people started talking about queerness and gayness and lesbianism more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just kind of leaked mm-hmm. into everywhere. And then there was will and grace. Yeah. And then there was the L word, right? Like, So if you're somebody who is all of a sudden thinking about your gender, like yeah. in a serious, like in a way, what's your advice for people? Like, what would you tell them to do? Because it is mm-hmm. sort of scary when you start thinking about those things for a lot of people. Find community. Yeah. That's, That's one of the reasons I moderate this server. Like, yeah. because, because so often people come in and they're like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one thinking this. Just like when people change their theology. And it's like in my late in life lesbian group. Oh, I thought I was the only, <laughs> I used to be that person. So yeah, my group. I mean, and, and that is part of our queer legacy is, you know, Anne Bannon wrote these pulp novels about lesbians in the 1950s. And there's a story about um, the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, mm-hmm. which is one of the earliest lesbian organizations, organizations yeah. in the country, mm-hmm. finding a copy of, I think it was one of Anne Bannon's pulp novels on a spinner in a drugstore in like Iowa and going, oh my God, 
Yeah. I'm not alone. Right. Yeah. So number one, absolutely find community, find people you can talk to about it. You can hire people or you can find friends or you can go to a, an open and affirming Christian congregation or a Unitarian Universalist congregation or like to find and and find queer community if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, find people because and, and this is true whether you're coming out of coming to this gender conversation straight out of straight, of straight marriage, yeah, which also yeah. happens. Yeah, which happens. Mm-hmm. And and that's its own kind of unsettling because like, what if my partner isn't attracted to me anymore? I love my partner. I have kids. I have a house. Am I really going to upend my entire life mm-hmm. for this thing that feels and sounds frivolous? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not frivolous. It's not frivolous. None <laughs> it's of that. None of this is frivolous. No, but but in that initial moment, sometimes yeah. that's what people think. Right. So find community, find support, do reading. There's a ton of information on the internet. Some of it is terrible. Use your critical thinking skills, (laughs) get advice Mm -hmm. Um, and give yourself all the space and time you need. Mm -hmm. You do not have to rush this process. You may. So what we call it is your egg cracking. When you Mm -hmm. discover that you're, you're trans and you're like, oh no, that's the egg crack moment. We talk about it. Like you're, you're hatching. Yeah, absolutely. And and so you may find that your egg cracks and you suddenly everything makes sense. Oh my God, that's what was wrong. That's why I can't get off in bed. That's why I always hate to dress up for formal occasions. I just discovered that if I look at GQ instead of looking at Cosmo, I'm much happier. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so sometimes it's just this flood of information. You want to move forward as fast as you can. And sometimes you really need to sit in the decision for a while. You really need to sit in the discernment for a while. And if that's what you need, do it. Mm-hmm. Allow the discernment to, to be your like safe, warm incubating space, mm-hmm. but like- stay in touch with community. Cause the, cause the brain weasels will get you. Yeah. You need, we, that's what, that's like my first piece of advice for people coming out later in life. I say find community, whether it's online and like for me, and I, I have this from own personal experience. Like it took me three tries to come out of the closet. And it was the third time when I Googled late in life lesbian and mm-hmm. I found a blog and somebody had started a, a, a Facebook community. And I joined that community. When I joined it, there was 160 women in it. And when it mm-hmm. expanded, there was 2,400. Mm-hmm. And that community was my sanctuary. And all of a sudden I had women saying things that I had only thought in my head. It mm-hmm. was, and it was interesting. I was talking to another, um, a, a gay guy who works with um, parents whose kids are coming out. Mm-hmm. And he was saying how there's like this documented, like adolescence for people coming out later in life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. Um, but it was funny because we always call it like our second adolescence. It's, mm-hmm. and I, and I argue it's our first because we really didn't have one the first time around. Right. And in trans yeah. communities, sometimes if you already came out as queer, that's a very layered experience because you had your first puberty and <laughs> you had your second puberty and now you're having your third one. Oh, wow. I never, ever thought about that. That's because cool. especially people who go on hormones. Mm-hmm. Like they have the physiological symptoms of, of puberty and going in, in either direction, physiological mm-hmm. symptoms of puberty, mm-hmm. but then also the emotional symptoms of puberty of like, who the hell am I? How do mm-hmm. I want to show up in the world? And the good part and the bad part is that if this is happening to you as an adult, you have adult money and adult power to adult do things about it. <laughs> 
that kid. Yeah. That literal teenagers don't have, you know, right. Leela, thank you so much for sharing your insight, sharing your, your knowledge of so many different things. I love listening to you and talking to you. You really have a handle on Unitarianism and Universalist Unitarianism. And also I would love to spend some more time talking about gender and all those things Mm -hmm. like that. But I really appreciate having your time today. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's absolutely been a pleasure. I love having these conversations and and really these conversations make such a huge difference in the life in in the world. So um, thank you for hosting them. Thank you for putting them out there. Thank you for bringing them to people who might not otherwise have access. It's, it's truly the greatest honor of my life. And it has been the greatest honor of my life to learn so much about like a part of the world that I didn't know exist. Like I knew it existed, but I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't a member of it. And so it's been such a really eye-opening and one like positively wonderful journey. So thank you so much for being my conversation partner for two hours. (laughs) And we probably could go on, but we're not going to. So thank you. You're so welcome. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezanzel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezanzel.com.